Today's sermon text is Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 978. Hear the word of the Lord. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in them. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the the word word of our our God God will stand stand forever. forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you now. Your word is open. Make it true of our hearts. Humble us now so we don't miss what you are saying in your word. Would you keep us from doing a disservice to you in the way that we receive this text? Even how I preach this text, there's so much here. I know this feeble effort will be here today and gone tomorrow, but your word will stand. Continue speaking to us through this word, even as we leave here today. Let your word bring repentance today and produce fruit among your people, making us look like you, our Father. In the name of your Son and by your Spirit, we pray together. Amen. Well, one thing that I learned last week is that it's a great diagnostic tool to ask a room of people of who all among you would take something out of the trash can and eat it. I learned a lot about many of you who came up to me and uh, said something about it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you've got to, it's a teaser. You've got to go back to last week's sermon and listen to the first five minutes at least of that sermon. So, um, Last week, though, we looked at how Paul came down out of the clouds from 30,000 feet and he came down and he landed the plane to show us what does it mean to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received? Or what, what is meant by us being God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them? What does it mean to walk as a Christian? And today, Paul begins a fresh series of charges, warnings, reminders that paint a stark contrast between the Christian community and those who are not considered, they don't consider themselves Christians. When John read that passage a few minutes ago, I understand, I could understand that it's entirely possible that uh, you may have had a knee-jerk reaction to this text. You may have been concerned. You've got children in, in here and may have had some concerns about that. Or maybe you just thought, I, I'm just, this is too dark of a text. I really could use just more encouragement this morning. You may be thinking, I, I, I'm just, I'm tired of hearing bad news. And that's not really something that I want to engage in this morning. But if you give Paul a chance here, you'll see What's actually happening here is actually full of good news. And I hope that as difficult as some of this text is, the overall tone of this text will actually lead you into something quite liberating and encouraging. It wonderfully illustrates what happens when Jesus Christ, the light of the world, shines on us. 
Will you look at the end of the passage with me? We'll start there and then we'll go back up to the top. Look at the very end in verse 14 where it says, therefore, it says. Therefore, it says, typically, when an author says, therefore, it says, they're going to point back to some sort of scripture, some sort of Old Testament scripture. But most believe that this is not a reference to any kind of Old Testament scripture, though there are implications there. It's implied there are some Old Testament passages, maybe from Isaiah, that are implied in this phrase. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's literally nothing in all of scripture that reads that way. So what's he referring to? Many biblical scholars believe that what Paul is quoting here is actually an, it's a hymn that was commonly sung in the early church. So what we are reading right here is actually a hymn fragment, most likely. There's reason to believe that this hymn was sung at the waters of baptism as a new believer was coming up out of the waters to live a new life. And the song was ringing through the air. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, this chorus, no doubt, was most likely based on a few different Old Testament texts, like uh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 51 and 52. It's mentioned several times. It's repeated a couple times. Not several, I think two or three times. Awake yourself. Awake yourself. Wake up. Wake up. The, the deliverer is coming. Isaiah 26, 19 says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light. Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2 says, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For, dar- for behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. It could also have been based on Zechariah's song that no doubt by this time when Paul is writing had been made known. Zechariah's song. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist in Luke chapter one. He sings this song. He's overcome with joy, not only at his the coming of his son, but the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. And he sings this because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. So, what happens when Christ shines on you? Everything changes. But what does that look like? If you're taking notes, I'll try to be clear with you uh, so I don't have the notes page for you. But I want you to, uh, to, to, when Christ shines on you, the first point that you would write down is it affects the way that you walk. When Christ shines on you, it affects the way that you walk. I've got seven things here. When Christ shines on you, how does it how does it affect you? And the first is that it affects the way that you walk. Look back at verses one through three. Recall last week what Paul wanted to help us learn. He wanted to help us learn how to walk and look back at five one with me. I think it's helpful to include that here in this text. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Notice the striking difference between verses one and two and verse three and four. You may think that Paul is taking a hard turn here. But it make it makes perfect sense to him. Paul takes the spotlight, the spotlight off of self-sacrificial love that we read about in five two, Jesus giving himself up as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And he turns the spotlight and it places it places it on the opposite of that. Not self-sacrificial love, but self-indulgent sensuality. He moves us from behavior that imitates God and walks in love to a way of life that actually is diametrically opposed to that. It imitates the prince of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, the, the, the sons of disobedience. So Paul says, when Christ shines on you, you will walk in purity. 
as an imitator of God, as opposed to having a life characterized by sexual immorality. Verse 3a, the very beginning, but sexual immorality, he mentions. In the previous section last week that, that I preached from, Paul employed a not this, but that kind of routine. Not this, put this off, and instead of doing this, do this. Not this, but that. Here, this is a this, but not that. Be imitators of God. Walk in love as Christ loved you. This is what I want you to do. Not that. Not sexual immorality. And he gives us a fairly wide range of what this might look like. But he, he starts out with sexual immorality. He uses the word porneo, which is where we get the word pornography or pornographic. And what he most likely has in mind here is adultery. Any, any illegitimate sexual relationship outside of marriage, he probably has that in mind. In 1 Corinthians, Paul actually addresses the church in Corinth for this behavior. And the, uh, no doubt in the, the uh, culture in Ephesus, it would have been similar to that in Corinth. It was a common snare for new Christians. So you might be thinking, well, I can check that off of my morality list. Stay away from prostitutes. I don't have to worry about that. You may feel like you've done well in that category, but Paul doesn't let us off the hook so easily. He's saying that unconditional obedience is required for the heart that belongs to Christ. And if you read through Paul's letters... In, any, in a short amount of time, you would notice one big thing that stands out is how big of a deal sexual sin is. And I think we're all smart enough in here to realize that Paul isn't pinpointing a certain industry of sexual uh, immorality. He's concerned about the heart. He says all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you because When Christ shines on you, you will walk in purity. The next thing that you would, the way it affects the way you walk, as opposed to, so it affects the way you walk, walking in purity as opposed to sexual immorality, and walking in purity as opposed to covetousness and idolatry. You see there, it says, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And then if you go down to verse 5, he says, uh, for you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Paul moves from acts of immorality and uncleanness to the heart, to the inner spring of someone's heart. And he attacks our greed, covetousness. As one commentator put it, Paul is pushing us to see that covetousness is painted with the same brushstroke as sexual immorality. It's the insatiable desire to have more, even the coveting of someone else's body for selfish gratification. So that phrase, all impurity, would include things like pornography or entertainment driven by the lust of the eyes or the flesh. We're all aware that pornography is one of the biggest industries of our time. It eats away at the soul of our, in the fabric of our nation, at the soul and the fabric of our families, causing so much relational death. With the coming of the smartphone era, now we can have a computer in our pockets, and it brings with it a sort, a sort of privacy that's a dangerous temptation among all of us. And no doubt, certainly, there are some even in this room, according to statistics, that would say that it's a struggle that you have. Now, you may think that you're in the clear, though. Some of you may think you're in the clear with pornography. But it may be dawning on you here that covetousness and idolatry is hitting too close to home for you. Note that Paul puts greed on the same shelf as sexual immorality. How bent are you towards coveting the lifestyle that someone else has? Covetousness is sneaky, isn't it? The sin, this sin can catch you, it can grip you, and many times overtake you without you even being aware. You must recognize that this is the type of sin that hides in your heart and no one else can see it. It causes you to begin to despise God's blessings in your own life. 
When you become so consumed with what you don't have that you can begin to miss what you do have. You, you can begin to despise God's blessings on you and your life. You're only interested in the next set of blessings and you're not thankful for what the Lord has already blessed you with. So when Christ shines on you, he helps you. He changes the way that you walk. He helps you to walk in purity as opposed to covetousness, which is idolatry. A change has taken place. And much like he did at the end of chapter four, Paul reminds us that what was consumed in immortality and impurity and greed, all of that, that's the old you. What was consuming you, that old impurity and greed, that's the old you. To which he says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And when he does, it not only affects the way that you walk, but it affects the way that you talk. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthy, filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Our speech will be marked by thanksgiving. As opposed to filthiness. Our speech will be marked by thanksgiving as opposed to foolish talk. Our speech will be marked by thanksgiving as opposed to crude joking. Now we're not going to spend time delineating the differences between those three terms. Filthiness, foolish talk and crude joking. There are slight differences. As Peter O'Brien points out, he says these three terms are all somewhat closely related. All three terms refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversation. It's referring to humor that is used to put other people down as well as obscenity and vulgarity, all of which Paul says are out of sync with love. Remember, walking in love as Christ loved us. It's out of sync with that. Paul says that this kind of speech doesn't fit you anymore. That's not who you are. It's not fitting. It's it's not proper among saints. Did you see that in verse three? It's not proper among saints. That's not who you are. That kind of talk, it's out of place, he says in verse four. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Remember, in the opening of the letter of Ephesians, Paul addressed them. You remember what he called them? He called them to the saints who are in Ephesus. In chapter 4, verse 1, he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. And then he refers to them as beloved children. Chapter 5, verse 1. Or be imitators of God. So we pray, Father, replace any tendencies or habits in me of improper speech. Replace it with gratitude and thanksgiving. And do you think it's odd that he uses thanksgiving here? He inserts here, let there be thanksgiving. I mean, when we think about sexual immorality and obscene language, we might think that what you've got to bring to that battle, those are like the tanks and, and the B-2 bombers. You've got to bring the big dogs out for that kind of a battle. And if that's what you think it's called for, you would be correct. Thanksgiving. That's what happens when you view the cross. It's what happens when you look at what God has done for you. In striking contrast to all forms of sexual immorality and obscene joking and, and, and speech and obscene uh, uh, conduct and, and attitudes and speaking and impure jokes. Thanksgiving. The distinctive mark of Christian speech is commanded to believers. Let there be Thanksgiving. The phrase even let there be should remind us even of Genesis one. Let there be light. Only God can produce that in our hearts. Let there be thanksgiving. What happens when we look at the cross? God produces thankfulness and gratitude for what he's done for us. When Christ shines on you, it brings upon you a fundamentally different attitude. Listen to how Peter O'Brien puts it for us. He says, whereas sexual impurity and covetousness both express self-centered acquisitiveness, thanksgiving is the actual opposite of that. And so it's the antidote that's required. It's the recognition of God's generosity. Thanksgiving is almost a synonym for the Christian life. 
So it's the response of gratitude to God saving you. In response to this reality that we read about in one seven, that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Christians are to live out their lives with joyful thanksgiving. Wherever the saints are. Paul says you will find thanksgiving. Silence is not the response of the saints. Notice again that Paul's not calling us to just stop with sexual immorality, though he is calling us to do that. He's not calling us to stop with sexual immorality that expresses itself in so many different ways through hidden sins or through speech. He's not just telling us to just stop the foolish talk or the dirty jokes or the coarse jesting. He will not settle for life of just abstaining. A Christian is one who holds firmly in their minds their torn Savior on the cross, dying for their sins. And it brings upon him or her, or her immense gratitude. When Christ shines on you, it affects the way that you walk and it affects the way that you talk. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And when he does, you will heed the warnings. It's the third thing. When Christ shines on you, you will heed the warnings. Verses 5 and 6. I think this was most arresting to me when I read this text. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These are two severe warnings, and they're given to Christians. It's intended to motivate them to seriously heed the warnings of what the dire consequences are for those who are sexually immoral or covetous. These warnings, if I could just use two words to describe these warnings. The first one is exclusion. What are these warnings? Exclusion. Exclusion from the kingdom of God. And the second one is experiencing the wrath of God. The warnings, exclusion from the kingdom of God and experiencing the wrath of God. The first warning, exclusion from the kingdom of God. Look back at verse 3 and you can make the connection Paul is making here. He uses the same words and he's being explicit here. Sexual immorality, impurity and covetousness. They're the same words that he uses in verse five. They must not be named among you. And here he's saying that not that no one in any of these three classes has an inheritance in God's kingdom. It's not uncommon for Paul to bring to the attention of his readers that sexual immorality is incompatible with the kingdom of God. Listen to what he says to the church in Corinth. He's speaking to Christians again in first Corinthians six, nine through eleven. He says, or you do or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality. Nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Paul makes it clear that persistent sinners like the immoral, persistent sinners like the impure, persistent sinners like the greedy, they have no part in God's heavenly kingdom. This is weighty. For those of you who are in Christ, you've already been assured in Ephesians chapter one that you have a secure hope of inheriting an indescribable eternal life to come. Ephesians one, 13 and 14 says in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. But we are here warned not to live our lives like unbelievers because unbelievers are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. 
Listen closely. Those who have given themselves over to immorality, impurity, and greed, even if they call themselves Christians, show that they are excluded from eternal life with God. But what he is not saying is if a believer falls into these sins, he's automatically excluded from God's kingdom. This is not referring to momentary lapses and momentary failures, but deliberate, intentionally repeated, settled choices with no regard for, regard for God's kingdom. No remorse, no shame, no repentance accompany, accompanying me, <laughs> this behavior. I'm having a hard time speaking. And the fact that we are having to be warned, even after we've been washed and sanctified and justified, according to 1 Corinthians 6, shows how strong the temptations are in this depraved world that we live in. And it's so easy to go back to your old life. It's so easy to go back to your old ways. But Paul says, when Christ shines on you, you will heed the warning. No immoral person has an inheritance in God's kingdom. And he says, for those of you who are in Christ, that's not you. Don't go back to your old ways. The second warning to heed is verse 6. The sexually immoral are experiencing the wrath of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You may have noticed that I use the present tense here. While it's true that the wrath of God will be eternally exacted upon those who rebel upon his, against his gracious rule in their lives, what's mostly in mind here is a current expression of God's wrath. Australian scholar Leon Morris helps us in understanding what God's wrath is. And he says it like this. He says, God's wrath is his settled disposition towards anything that's incongruous with his love and his holiness. God's wrath is his settled disposition towards anything that is incongruous with his love and his holiness. Fire and brimstone, thunder and lightning, those are the things we may think of when we think of God's wrath. But perhaps the scariest thing that God can do with us is to give us up so that we have our own way. In Romans chapter 1, we read an arresting account of what God's wrath is. And Paul states that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's being revealed who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They chose not to honor him nor gave him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so how does God respond to this behavior? It's not in the way that you might expect. Verse 24 of Romans 1 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they worshiped the creator, or the creature, instead of the creator. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And a few verses later, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You can just look at the news. You can just look at social media and see what's happening. The wrath of God is being revealed. Now, a few diagnostic questions for those who have struggled. Who struggle with lust, struggle with covetousness. And you may be asking, has God given me up? Am I a son of disobedience? Am I on the outside looking in? Well, here are a couple of questions, diagnostic questions. When you sin, do you feel a sense of remorse and a sense of pain that you have hurt your Savior? Another question is, do you have a desire to honor the Lord with your life? Another question, do you have any fear of being excluded from God's kingdom? And if so, why? Are you afraid of being excluded from God's kingdom because it sounds awful? Or is it because you long to live in the light of God's goodness and grace and mercy and you long to see Jesus? Do you long for the end of all the strife and do you long for the end of all the losses that you've taken when it comes to fighting your sin?
And perhaps most importantly, are you now trusting in Christ? Are you now trusting in Christ and what he has done for you at the cross? And if you're not sure, I encourage you, grab a close friend here, a brother or sister within the church family and talk to them, talk those questions out with them. The call in our lives is to leave behind the realm of darkness and death. I don't have to spell it out. We all know that we're living in a godless culture. We feel the weight of it every week. Like Becca prayed, there's praises and celebrations of sexual immorality that are common. The LGBTQIA or whatever. I don't know all the letters. We groan. We groan when we hear of the movements The latest push towards our children. We see the leaders from the local level to the national level, from sports teams to retail stores to the beverage industry, pushing this in our faces and we get angry. And God's justice demands that we get angry. But if you remember from last week, good anger is based on God's character and it's mixed with grief. There should be a heaviness that we feel. And anger, yes, but also a sadness. So when you see the faces who are screaming on the front lines of the protests, you are seeing a human who has been given over to their own desires and is experiencing the wrath of God, will one day meet him face to face, forever experience his settled disposition towards all that went against him in their life. It's a person. It's a sobering reminder that if we're not careful, we will grow to hate them. And that's antithetical to the gospel. It's not mainly a political issue. Walk in love, Christian, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Let your anger be towards the God of this world who has blinded them and pray for them. And remember that if it weren't for the grace of God, you could be right there in their place. It's also a startling warning to us. What are we welcoming into our lives that welcomes God's wrath? Last week, I gave an illustration of a venomous serpent being released into your child's bedroom. Connecting the danger of letting them go to bed, seething in anger when it says that Satan, that's how he gets a foothold in your family. But this week, the picture is almost more sobering. We can unintentionally massage into our lives attitudes, dispositions, habits that are welcoming the wrath of God. What about the movies that we watch? What are we entertained by that looks more like the darkness? What are we entertained by that the sons of disobedience would enjoy? Are we slowly enslaving ourselves to sexual immorality, obscene humor, and coarse language? And soon we will look more like the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, instead of our good father who gave a son for us to make us holy and blameless before him. When Christ shines on you, you will heed his warnings. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And and when he does, the fourth thing, when Christ shines on you, you will fight your sin together. First, I think we can see how dangerous sin is. I heard someone one time say, by the time you roll out of bed in the morning, Christian, sin has already been awake, had a full breakfast, exercised and is ready to get to work on you. So we must see the call to fight our sin, but to do so together. You may say, well, where do you see that in the text? We're reminded that Paul was writing to the church family in Ephesus. And you can't go far in Ephesians without seeing that he's talking to a community of faith. And he uses phrases like he used here, as is proper among the saints. Meaning, you're not in this alone. You're among the saints. And further, he says, do not become partners with them. Verse seven, therefore, do not become partners with them. That's kind of the hinge verse. There are two sections. Verse seven kind of connects the two sections. But becoming partners with them, he's saying don't be partners with them. That implies that you're actually partners with somebody else. You're partners with another. So quickly, how can we help one another fight our sin together? First of all, admit your need for partnership in this battle. 
Admit your need for partnership in this battle. How do you fight your sin together? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said this. He says, you are a sinner, a great, desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to a God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you. A sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner and you'll be in good company. Admit your need for help in this battle. The second thing to fight, a way to fight is let others speak the truth to you. Verse six says, let no one deceive you with empty words. What's the antidote to that is what's the antidote to deceitful words? It's the truth. It's essential that we let other people speak truth into our lives. Another way to engage in this battle together is be willing to speak the truth to others as well. This will include finding a brother or sister that you know and that you can trust, that you can confess your sins to and ask for prayer for yourself. And the last way that we would fight this, there are many ways that you can fight this battle. Ruthlessly rid yourselves of all that is incongruous with God's kingdom. Ruthlessly rid yourselves of all that's incongruous with God's kingdom. God's kingdom is all about wholeness and righteousness and goodness and truth. And the more that God draws us into this kingdom, the more that we desire everything in our lives that is in accord with God's kingdom to be rooted out of our lives. And we can't do that alone. We need others help to do that. I've mentioned last week, I've worked with teenagers over the years and I've been to many youth camps and one of the things that was commonly said is I'd like to rededicate my life to God. You may have been to a camp and you may have heard that many times. And many of youth workers probably nodded their heads and thought, just like you said last year. And the year before that and the year before that, almost as a dismissive attitude. Yet when I read this passage, I would have I wish I would have been more open and welcoming wholeheartedly to this. That I would embrace this and set out to walk with them and not just to see if they're serious this time. To see if they mean it. Paul says to fight your sin and don't stop fighting. Continuously pursue Christ. You will fall, yes, but continue to pursue Christ. What if during the Olympics, during the fastest man contest, the 100 meter race, everyone was watching in anticipation. And when the gun goes off, one of the guys immediately comes out of his stance and lifts his arms up in victory. That he had done it. He would be the scorn of the games. That's often how we think of the Christian life. Once we're saved, we've made it. But Paul says it's a race. It's a fight. It's a battle. And press on together. Do you want to be free? Then be free together as you fight this battle together. So when Christ shines on you, you will fight your sin together. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And when he does... You will remember who you are. And when he does, you'll remember who you are. Verse eight. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So you could even correct me and say, no, no, no. you would remember who you were, not who you are. And, and on that point, you're probably right. Both are important. Remember who you were and remember who you are now. That kingdom that you were in was the dominion of darkness. And you used to walk that way and you were following the course of this world. You were sons of disobedience, Paul calls us. You were by nature children of wrath in Ephesians 2. You followed the prince of the power of the air. You lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. But now you are children of God. You are beloved children. You are imitators of God. You are to walk as children of light. When Christ shines on you, you remember who you once were. You'll remember who you are. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And when he does, 
You will walk as children of light. I get this through the rest of the text, verses 8 through 14. You will produce the fruit of light. Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Paul states that the fruit of being his child, of walking with Christ, is goodness, righteousness, and truth. Basically, you're imitating God. It goes back to 5.1. For you were formerly darkness. I think that's interesting. He didn't say for you were formerly in darkness. Well, that's true. You were in the domain of darkness, but you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. When Christ gets a hold of, person, of a person, the light of Christ begins to radiate out of that person. It's happened to you. You've seen it in somebody or somebody may have seen it in you. If you're walking with Christ, they may say there's something different about you. You were you were just different. Because in some sense, we become light because of our union with Christ, the one who said he is the light of the world. We become that which we expose ourselves to. Another aspect, another uh, way that we will walk as children of the light is not only that we'll produce the fruit of light, but we'll discern what is pleasing to the Lord in verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Wisdom and prudence is needed. It demands that we be self-aware enough of our own lives and our own our own shortcomings and the things that trip us up. Where we might fall to temptation or journeying into places that would bring scorn or shame on Jesus's name, that we have to be aware of that. And we long to want to know what pleases the Lord. It's not immediately obvious sometimes. We also as we're walking as children of light, not only discerning what is pleasing to the Lord, but we see the world differently. Verse 13, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Some of you might say, I see the world completely differently. I saw it completely different when I came to Christ. Someone said, it's an old hymn, something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. We begin to see the world clearly And that brings us both joy and sorrow. We see the world differently. We see current events differently. We see natural disasters differently. We we see our own sin differently. We see depravity differently. We see the protests differently. We see ourselves clearly. We see governments and corporations differently. We begin to see God differently. It changes our outlook and it changes our knee-jerk reactions. Almost to where we're imitating God. We're also, when we walk as children of the light, reject the ways of the world. We no longer participate with the ways of the world. Verse 7 and verse 11. Verse 11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. I have a friend who came uh, to Christ when he was in college, and he's a pastor now. And I remember a couple, probably a little over 10 years ago, I I mentioned that uh, I was going to the beach with my family and he, he told me, he said, brother, guard your eyes and your heart. He added, in Christ Jesus. Brother, guide, uh, guard your eyes and your heart in Christ Jesus. And I don't know why that struck me as odd. And I, I hope that, that something like that wouldn't be odd to be said here. It feels rather obtuse in conversations. And some of you, I think I may have even mentioned it to some of you that are going out of town by yourself on a, on a work trip. But it's because we've been saved from God's wrath. And yet Paul here tells us that the wrath of God is coming for those who play around with sexual immorality. It's serious enough to welcome his wrath. So our partnership in the gospel together should reflect that we really believe that. Let's not wander onto the beaches of Normandy thinking that we're going to have a cakewalk. And Ryan, when he told me that, my friend Ryan When he told me that, he was helping me to reject the ways of this world, no longer participating in the old patterns of this world. That was the old you, Kyle. The new you's come. He was helping me walk as a child of light. And the last way that I see us walking as children of light 
is found in 11, verse 11, exposing the darkness. Exposing the darkness. Take no part in unfruitful works of the darkness. You see how it's not just abstaining from something. He says, but instead expose it. Expose them. The unfruitful works of the darkness. Expose them. My wife was telling me of a sermon she heard Alistair Begg preach this week. And he pointed out that sometimes we Christians live our lives running from rabbit hole to rabbit hole. And some of the rabbit holes that we run into, and none of these are bad, by the way. These are blessings from God. One might be an education rabbit hole. Another one might be that we might pick our family. We might come out of the rabbit hole and go to the family rabbit hole. Or we might go to a friend's rabbit hole or to a church rabbit hole. All of these things are great rabbit holes. And he was asking the question, essentially, how can we expose the darkness when we only run from rabbit hole to rabbit hole and we never engage the world? Throughout this week, if you pay attention, there will be opportunities for you to not only reject the darkness, but rather expose it. How can you do that? I'll give you two ways to expose darkness. Sometimes it means you'll have to speak up for the truth. When lies are being spoken, perhaps someone is being slandered right in front of you. It's time to speak up. So speak up and the other one is show up. It's just a matter of you being there. If you've ever had someone act one way around you and then they find out that you're a Christian or if they find out you're a pastor, especially, right, right? If they find out you're a pastor, they totally change the way that they act around you. And this is what happens when darkness is exposed by the light that is within you. The sin begins to be curbed. Their propensity to sin around you is curbed. I kind of want to close with this, that this is a welcoming of all who sit in darkness to let the light of Christ shine on you. For those of you that are in here that would say, I've never trusted in Christ to save me from my sins. I didn't even know I needed to be saved from my sins. Or perhaps you've been thinking about it. You might be thinking, I can never have a strong enough faith to walk this dark world, to give up my sin. There are too many old patterns in my life, but all it takes is one step of faith and trust that what God was doing through His Son Jesus 2,000 years ago was to pay the price for your sins. Then you will not only be saved, but you will become a child of God. You'll be given new passions in your life, new hope in your life. You'll become light, as Jesus called Himself, the light of the world. As Tim Keller put it so well, he says, you are more wicked than you ever dared to believe. This is for all of us. You are more wicked than you ever dared to believe, but you are more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever dared to hope. All at the very same time, a Christian believes this. So when Christ shines on you, you walk as children of light. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And when he does, I hope that this passage will cause you to be amazed at the absolute greatness of Jesus. That's the seventh thing. When he shines his light on you, you'll be amazed at the absolute greatness of Jesus. I want to close by doing what we were encouraged to do at the end of last week's sermon once again, and that's this. Look at what God has done for you in Christ. There was an old legend that some of the early church fathers would tell. And it was that Adam was buried underneath the hill of Golgotha. And when Christ's cross was planted there and the Savior died there, it was as if in that moment the heavens were singing to Adam, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. And Christ has shone on you. And verse 14 conveys this idea of dominating, transforming light in the midst of darkness. The call to wake up and rise from the dead. It refers to your fundamental turnaround at conversion. I love that this was believed to be a hymn that was sung as new Christians were coming up out of the waters of baptism. Waking up from the sleep of spiritual death and the light of life. It's as if Paul was saying, remember when you were brought up from the waters of baptism and the congregation was singing this phrase. It was ringing in your ears. And when the Ephesians... And when you are tempted to forget that, while once you had been children of wrath, sons of disobedience, you are now children of light. Remember your baptism 
and these words. Perhaps the Ephesian Christians, if they could have watched from heaven singing this over you. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Can you hear it? Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You can look around the room. And you can take note of all the miraculous stories in this room. And each story is incredible. Because it's mainly a story about Jesus. All of our stories. Our boast is in the work of Christ. And how he shined his transforming light on us. He woke us from our slumber. He raised us from the dead. So some of us in here may be thinking that your story is somewhat lame. But we know better. Your story is about the greatness of Jesus. And when he shined his light on you at VBS. Some of you, some of you have a radical transformation story. And the greatest and most powerful part of your story is when Jesus laid down his life for you. He woke you up. He shined his light on you. The song of the saints in Ephesians 5. The saints in Ephesus. And the saints here in Cahaba Heights. The saints in Turkey. The saints in South Africa. The saints in Uganda. The saints in Turkey. In Ukraine. It's boisterous. It's a boisterous and resounding anthem welcoming the dead to rise, the blind to see, the lame to walk. It's the resounding chorus that we saints can sing as we watch one another gain victory over darkness in our fight against sin. And it's the song that we sing as we are overcome by the absolute greatness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. God, there is so much here, a lot to even work through for many of us in this room. But Father, I am asking that your Holy Spirit would press us on to Christ, would fix our eyes and our gaze on Christ and his death on the cross for us sinners, saved by your grace, now to be your beloved children. Imitators of you, walking in love as Christ loved us. And we're so thankful that his offering was a sacrifice and it was sufficient for us. And for those in this room who don't know you, may this be the day of salvation for them. Let this be the day that they wake up, that Christ shines on them. We pray these things in Christ's name and by your spirit. Amen.